Have you ever have you ever tried to describe yourself? Uh, not so much what you look like or what you do, but who you are at the core of your being. If I were to ask you, who are you? How would you answer? Um, my, my first response is to answer in terms of what I do. I'm a preacher, I'm a missionary, I'm from some country. But that's not really at the essence of who you are. Um, of course, psychologists and, and you know, we, we've tried to answer this question. Even describing what the who of you is is a difficult thing. What is it that's at the core of your being? What exactly is being, right? We're a body. Are we just a bag full of chemistry going off all the time? Or is there something more to our being than just chemicals? Well, we believe, of course, as Christians, there's much more to us than just physical interactions. But what is it, right? What is it that's the essence of our nature, of who we are? Well, that's a difficult question to answer for us. And it's even difficult to, just, to, to come up with language to talk about our very being. Uh, if that's true for human, human beings... How much more difficult is it when we talk about God, right? Who is God and what is his being? What is God like? Who is he? Uh, And the reason that's more difficult with God is because he is, in the words of theologians, he is transcendent, spiritual, infinite being. Okay, a lot of big words, right? Transcendent means he's not part of the created universe. He's beyond it, outside of it. He exists outside the realm of everything created. So we can't picture him or uh, view him in terms of anything that would relate to the physical order. And that's why, of course, God said, don't make idols. We're not to to cast him in the image of something that's part of this world because he's beyond it. He can't be conceived of or thought of in terms of anything in the universe. He's spiritual, which means, actually, I don't know what that means. That's the problem. What is spirit? Well, it's, it's, it's fundamentally that which is without body, right? And, and it's hard for us to conceive or imagine being that's without body, because all we know are beings who have bodies. So that's hard. And God is infinite, which means he's without beginning or end. Um, maybe your kids, this is like, this is a kid question every kid asks. Mommy, where did you come from? Well, I came from Grandma. Well, where did Grandma come from, right? And the kids would go on down, and then you you get to God. We all came from God, and then there's the question, well, where did God come from, right? It's hard for us to imagine a being who is without origin, who's eternal, who has no beginning and no end. So, it's hard for us to think about who God is. It's hard for us to comprehend Him. And that, that causes a problem for us because we are Invited into a relationship with him. And relationship is ultimately one being reacting to, responding to, relating to another being. Right? So we interact through words and we can learn something about a person by what they do. But ultimately we have a relationship with their being, with who they are. Um, And so that's hard for God because who is he? What is he really like? How can we grasp and wrap our mind around him? In fact, the challenge of of this, uh, theologians will tell us that ultimately God is incomprehensible. Really also, I'm sorry about all the big words. I've just, just so you know, I just used them all. I know no other like five syllable words. I just used them all up. But incomprehensible means we, we can't grasp, we can't really wrap our minds around who God is. Um, he's, like the song says, he's indescribable. 
So how is it we relate to this God who's, who's incomprehensible, who's transcendent? He's, we try to use these big words to describe him. Well, the good news is that God uh, has decided and he's made great efforts and attempts at revealing himself to us. He, he seeks to communicate himself to us, not only through his words and not only through his deeds, but he wants us to know his very being. Uh, and he's done that in a number of ways. And Hebrews 1 says that, you know, in the past God has done that. He's spoken to us through the prophets. But in, in these last days he has done it. He's spoken to us by his son. And uh, so, so God wants to reveal himself to us. And not only what, he, what, he's, what he's speaking, what he's doing, but ultimately in Jesus we, we do get a picture of who God is in his being. Uh, and that's really what the incarnation is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. And so let's unpack just a little bit more Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And I'm going to look, zero in on just a couple of phrases that help us see how Jesus is really the ultimate revelation. How Jesus communicates to us the very being of God. Um, so how does he do that? And how can we know God through what he's revealed in Jesus the Son? Well, uh, these verses explain to us that God is, that Jesus is the eternal Son. And that really has two ideas in mind here. And the one is, first of all, that Jesus was fully God. He was, in other words, in his being, in who he was, he shared completely in the being or nature or essence of who God is. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In verse 2 he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He has a whole mouthful of stuff there, and I'm going to blow through this really quickly. But here's some things we can know about the Son. He is fully God. Completely in every way uh, is God. First of all, it says he's, it implies he's eternal. He's the heir of all things and the creator of all things. What that means is that at the end of, at the end of time, when all is said and done, when, when the ages have run their course, it says Jesus inherits it all. It all belongs to him. And at the end of time, he will possess it all. Uh, on top of that, and it's funny that uh, the writer puts these kind of in reverse order. I would have put create first. You know, you make it and then you get to inherit it. But there's probably reasons for that we don't have time to go into today. But it says that he also is the creator of all things. That through the Son, God created the worlds. And the word there for worlds is literally, if you guys have your Greek Bibles out, it's the word. Anybody have it? Right, aeons, aeons, you're, you're all going to say that, right? Uh, the aeons, the ages, right? The, it's where we get eons from, right? God created the ages. So not just the universe, not just the world, but he created very time itself. So Jesus existed before time began, and he will exist when time ends. He's eternal. Like God, he is without beginning and without end. So he shares that piece of God's being. Um, he is, in fact, in the in very being God. And it describes it this way. It says, he is the radiance of God's glory. Okay, in other words, he is the, the very brilliance who, of God who is ineffable light, unchangeable light. If God's glory is a blazing and blinding brilliance, the sun is the very light of that brilliance. Uh, whatever substance in God's nature gives him glory... 
the sun possesses that same substance. Right? So, big words, big concepts, kind of abstract and out there, but what he's saying is that the sun is in every way uh, the brilliance of God's glory. Uh, and he, he, he explains it even further in this phrase. He says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, all you guys with your Greek, Greek New Testaments out there, the word imprint is what word? Right, character. Man, you guys are sharp today with those Greek words. It's the Greek word character. So it's a word that we get the word character like as in a letter. And it was used to describe something that was an exact imprint. So like if a, if a character was molded into a seal or a stamp and you stamped that image, you would get the exact reproduction of that image in the copy. right? And that's what he says. He says the sun is the exact imprint or character or impression of the original. Right? He's the exact duplicate of the very original. Everything that's in the Father uh, is in the Son. And, and specifically, he says it's the exact imprint of his nature. One last Greek word. Sorry to kill you off with all these Greek words. But these are fun Greek words because we have them in English. Last Greek word is the Greek word hypostasis. Anybody heard that word? A couple of you. Nobody wants to admit it. Um, if you, if, you went to, if you studied theology, you should know the word hypostatic union. You want to impress your friends? Yeah, how about that hypostatic union? Just as a clue, it's not in your car. Okay, the hypostatic union is not a part of your car. Uh, hypostasis is a Greek word that, that means the very core essence of what somebody is. When I said, who are you? How do you describe that? What is your essence? The, the Greeks use the word hypostasis to try to quantify that. If you stripped away all the outside stuff, you got down to the core of who you are. That's your hypostasis. It's the essence of your being. And he says that, that the sun is the very imprint, the very exact match duplicate of the very essence of God. All that to say, the sun is, in, the, in very being, God. Eternal God. From before time to the end of time, God. Um, but he is also sun. So, uh, God, God is one being. He is one in essence. Uh, that essence, that nature, right, is one. But it exists in three persons. The Son, the Father, the Spirit. Um, they all possess one and the same nature or essence. One hypostasis. Uh, but they are in relationship as separate persons. Um, Two separate persons, one essential being, and that's that, that's the Son. Okay, that's the Son. So, Jesus, who was born, uh, that we celebrate at Christmas time, was the pre-existent eternal God, existing uh, not just as one God, but it, from all eternity as a triune, as a three-person being, uh, who had the fullness of all that it meant to be God. Um. But he is also Jesus, who, who's fully man. Right? And if you notice, I've been very intentional about trying not to use the word Jesus. I've been trying to use the word Son. Because the Son is eternal. The Son is preexistent. The Son's always been there. But was Jesus eternal? In other words, the Jesus, was Jesus without beginning? A trick question, right? Was Jesus without beginning? Well, no. Jesus had a beginning, Right? And there was a day when Jesus was born as a human being to the Virgin Mary. 
Uh, and he became, he, God, the infinite, eternal Son, poured himself into human flesh on that day. And on that day, he got a name. And it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews uh, refers to that, I believe. He says in verse 3, After making purifications for sin, he, that is, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. Right? When did Jesus inherit his name? Uh, to inherit, it means he was bequeathed to him, it was given to him. Well, I believe, and there's some debate here, just so you know, uh, theologians and scholars debate on what the name is. But I believe the name is Jesus. I think the most obvious logical explanation is the name the Son was given was Jesus on the day he was born. He became something he was not before. He became not only fully God, but on that day he became fully God and fully human, fully man. Right? And that's who Jesus was. Jesus is the, the incarnate God, meaning the full divine nature, the full essence of who God was in his being somehow got poured into and combined with the full nature and essence of what it means to be a human being, and that's who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. Um, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Right? That's what the incarnation is about. When God did really the impossible by taking his infinite transcendent, transcendent spirit being and nature and somehow joining it to a nature just like yours and mine. A nature with a body, a nature that is limited, that has a beginning, uh, a nature that uh, is human. So what's the, what's the point of all this? Well, uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. In other words... Jesus, the man-God, fully, fully, fully God, fully human, uh, is a unique and special revelation, a special speaking of God whereby he communicates to us something of who he is. Uh, he reveals to us his nature, his being, his essence in the person of Jesus. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, God's speech or revelation in Jesus the Son it's something that God says, something that God does, and something that God is. And uh, we've, in these three weeks we've been looking at that. Last week we looked at how Jesus is the revelation of what God spoke. Today we're focusing on the revelation of what, how Jesus reveals what God is. And is uh, the being of God. Um, so how did Jesus do that? Uh, what does this mean to us practically? It's a lot of theology and we can just keep it way out there and go home and be, yay, I learned big words today. But what does it really mean for us, right? How is it we can know God in Jesus in ways we couldn't know him otherwise? Well, the reality is that we can know because uh, Jesus brings God up close and personal. Right? Jesus reveals to God, God to us in ways that bring him up close and personal. Uh, let's, let's look at that first. What does it mean by up close? Well, up close means that, of course, first of all, God came from heaven to earth. Right? So in that sense, Jesus got a lot closer. Wherever heaven is, I don't know, but there's a sense that it's far away. Of course, coming to earth, Jesus came 
uh, and, and brought, brought God very near to us. But it's more than just space. It's, just, it's more than distance. Uh, Jesus brings God near to us because he makes the incomprehensible, infinite God now something we can grasp because he's like us. Right? He's like us. By pouring his divine nature into a human body, Jesus became a, a real person who lived real life. And by doing so, we can, we can know who he is in a way that was, was impossible otherwise. Just like you and I can know each other, even though we might not be able to put words about it, around it, you may not be able to really describe your own nature or the nature of your child or your spouse or your friend. But we, we, we know that person, right? There's something about them. Uh, sometimes people call me by the wrong name, right? But they never mistake me for somebody else, really, right? If they know me at all, I'm, I'm who I am. I'm that being. Well, Jesus communicates, us, uh, communicates God to, the, to us in that up-close kind of way. Uh, by becoming a human being. Uh, we can grasp, we can wrap our minds around him because he lived life just like we do. Um, and it's also personal. He's up close, but he's also personal. He uh, brings God to us in a way that we can now have relationship with him. Right? That's what it's about. Personal means two beings relating to each other. And Jesus coming as a person opens up whole possibilities and realms of us to have relationship with God. Um, How many of you have had this experience where you just feel like it's so hard to connect with God, right? He's so distant and far away and incomprehensible that you feel like it's hard to relate to him. Um, Maybe when your kids were little, or maybe you remember when you were little, having an imaginary friend. You may have an imaginary friend. Your kids have an imaginary friend, right? And imaginary friends are great because, um, well, for one, when you're a child, you kind of get to control them, I think. I'm not sure quite how it works, right? But they're always with you. They're always there. And, um, and, and children can have quite long conversations, right, with their imaginary friend. But there's something missing with an imaginary friend. And I, I know very few, I do actually know a few, but not very many adults who still have imaginary friends. And those who I do who do are on special kind of medicine, right? So uh, we, we kind of outgrow that because we realize that there's something missing from an imaginary friend that's there with the real life person. Well, for many of us, I think we would say that honestly, our relationship with God feels oftentimes more like a relationship with an imaginary friend, Right? It's, you know, it misses that real-life connection of a face-to-face personal being. Our relationship with God oftentimes tends to reside mostly in our head, in our imagination. Not that he's not real, but that's where we conceive of him. But Jesus changed all that when he came. Because he came as a real-life living human being who spoke to people, not in an imaginary way, not just in their mental thoughts but face-to-face. And so, by doing that, uh, he, in his life, as he related to everyday people in many different circumstances and events, he reveals vast volumes about the being of God. 
Let's look at some examples of how this worked real quick. We're going to just kind of blow through these three examples of how Jesus did this. How by being human, by being able to interact with real life people in everyday real life situations, he reveals something of the nature and being of God. Uh, And as we look at this, it's important to distinguish that uh, oftentimes we look at Jesus' life and we may read through the Gospels and we may think that the point of it all is that Jesus is an example for us. And that the point of the Gospels is that we're supposed to model our life after Jesus. Now, there, there is some truth in that. And, and, and certainly he is an example, and certainly we are to follow him. Certainly he is a standard for what our life should be. And so, in many real respects, we are to follow him. But Jesus is not just an example. The point of him coming to earth was not just to show us how to live life. Right? Because there are some things he did that make it really complicated for us. Like walking on water. Right? Okay, if Jesus is just an example, then walking on water is something that we should all be able to go out and do. Right? If you want to have a class, we go to the pool right now. And if you know how to do this, you can teach me. Right? Well, obviously, there's things that Jesus did that are more than example. More than example because they are revelation. They are showing us who God is. And God is not like us. Right? He is vastly more than us. So what we would expect to see in Jesus as he reveals the Father, as he does things that, yes, we can follow as an example, but he does things that are way beyond that, like walking on water. Uh, Mark 8, 1 through 9. Um, we won't actually read all of it, but we'll read the first few verses. Uh, Jesus goes, he sees this crowd. It says and in, in, in verse 1, in those days... A great crowd gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a very, very far distance. See, Jesus... As a human being, as himself, knew what hunger was like. He knew what it was like to go without food. Sees this massive crowd has been out with him three solid days, and their food has all run out. And he's recognizing that these people have been in this very remote wilderness place, no food, and the closest McDonald's is a day's walk away. What are you going to do, right? And so, of course, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, let's feed them, and they're all like, yeah, you know, not only is McDonald's a whole day's away, 7-Eleven is also really far. How are we going to feed all these people without a 7-Eleven? And Jesus says, don't worry, I got this, right? And so Jesus takes a loaf of bread and two fish, and he feeds 4,000 men, plus their wives and children, with one loaf of bread and two fish. Right? On the one hand, God, Jesus in this story reveals God's compassion for people in need. God sees people in need. Jesus saw these people in need, and he was moved with compassion for them. That's that's the heart of God. God, he's revealing us what what God sees, what God feels when he looks at you and he sees you struggling and in need. Whether it's financial need, whether it's food, whether it's physical, material. When God sees your need, he is moved with compassion. And we know that because Jesus was moved with compassion. He didn't say, well, that's just, you know, Poor planning. You idiots. Why didn't you plan ahead, right? No, he has compassion for them. We should have compassion when we see people in need around us, right? We, should, we can copy. We can follow his example and have that same kind of part of compassion. 
But God, Jesus also reveals that not only does God have compassion, but God alone can meet our needs in ways that we cannot. Right? Try as you may, I'm telling you, none of you are going to feed 4,000 people with one loaf of bread. Right? It's not going to happen. God alone is this provider and sustainer. And, and so Jesus reveals that, yeah, he has compassion, but God can do something to meet our needs like no human being can. It is no problem for him to provide for you. And you may look at your monthly little income and, you know, you get your income over here and you make your little budget. You know, you get your little money over here. You get your 20000 bottom month and you add up all your expenses over here and it adds up to 40000 bottom month. And you're going, God, I can't do this. And God's saying, don't worry about it. I got it. Right? I see how pathetic your life is and I have compassion for you. And I'm going to take care of you because I can make 20,000 baht turn into 20 million baht. It's not a problem for me. Right? See, God is, uh, Jesus is, is the revelation of who God is. Second one, story. Uh, John 11, uh, 32 to 36, uh, the death of Lazarus. You remember in this story, Jesus intentionally waits to, to come back to Bethany where he knows Lazarus is because knowing that he's sick because he wants Lazarus to die. Because he says, through that I'm going to display the glory of the Father. And so Lazarus dies and Jesus comes and his very, very dear and close friends, Mary and Martha, are distraught over the death of their brother. And they are in the depths of grief and agony over the loss of their dearly loved brother. Right. And uh, we won't read the whole story, but in verse 36, verse 32, it says, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she is uh, agonizing, right? If only you had been here. And, and notice Jesus' response. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. In this story, we see Jesus uh, portraying, revealing the heart of God who sees our suffering and our pain. And he empathizes with us. Right? He feels our pain and our hurt with us. Uh, God does not look at your suffering and your struggles and your emotional agony and, and look at it in some kind of detached and distant way. Um, he enters into our feeling and he cares deeply about what you feel. You know, people say all the time in the midst of suffering and hurt and heartache, you know, where's God in the midst of our suffering? I'm telling you, he is with you in the midst of your suffering, feeling what you feel. And then that's Jesus. He was deeply moved. And he enters into their grief. And, and he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead. Jesus could have said, you know, quit with the emotional stuff. You're, you're scaring me here, right? And I'm going to fix it. Just trust me. No. He enters into their, their grief with them. That's the heart of God. God cares deeply about your suffering and your emotional struggles and what you feel. So much so that he feels it with you. When you weep, he weeps. Um, But it doesn't stop there. God is more than just a great counselor who can empathize with us. 
He's also the one who can fix it. And uh, a couple scenes later, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the guy has been dead four, four days, gets up and walks out of the tomb. Jesus is not only our empathizer, but he is the resurrection and the life. Right? He is the author of life. He gives it and he takes it and he can give it back again. Right? So you see, Jesus is on the one hand an example. We are certainly to have that same heart of sharing in people's grief and suffering and joy and, and feeling with people when they feel. We're not raising people from the dead. Right? God alone does that. And even if you have the privilege of praying for somebody and they come back to life, you didn't do it, okay? God did it. Jesus did it. He's the author of life. So God, so Jesus in his, in his human body, he, see, he reveals so much of what the Father is. Uh, one who can relay with our human emotions, but one who is so much more, who has the power over life and death itself. Last one. John 13. Uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, uh, to the Last Supper, and he... Uh, he serves his disciples. Right? It says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, he knew he was about to die. He loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Literally, the idea there is that he, he was about to show them the full extent and measure of his love. How? By washing their feet? No. Though that was, was pretty loving. But what he's referring to is he's about to go to the cross. On the cross, he's going to show the full extent of his love for human beings. So during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and he's still sitting there in the group, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. We see here that God, the creator God of the universe, the God of all glory, has no problem humbling himself and becoming a servant and a slave. And in this account, it says that Jesus took off his robe. It's a great picture of Jesus taking off his robe of glory. And it says he wrapped, in many translations, he wrapped a towel or wrapped a cloth around him. Literally, it was the, it was the garment of a slave. And it's this amazing picture of what Jesus did serving you and I to bring us salvation. Where he not only, as a slave and as a servant, washed the disciples' feet, but as Philippians tells us, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Right? His very becoming a person, his very pouring that divine essence into that human body was uh, an incredible act of humility and of low, lowering himself, emptying himself to serve us. But, but not only did he serve us, he took that service to the furthest possible extent, the full extent of his love by dying for us. And Mark 10.45 puts it this way, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus alone could die for our sins. 
And here again, you get this amazing picture of Jesus showing us who God is. On the one hand, God is one whose heart will serve. Uh, he, he doesn't seek glory in his earthly form. He empties himself. He takes on the role of a slave and a servant. And he does it ultimately to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He dies the most terrible, horrible death. Why? Well, to take our punishment for our sin upon himself. So see, Jesus reveals the humble heart of God who serves. Can we copy that? Yes. Should we imitate that? Absolutely. But more than that, he shows that he has the power to bring salvation by laying down his life for our sins. Do we imitate and copy that? (laughs) Anybody up to die for my sins? No. No. Anybody? No, of course not. Right? Because even if we were to volunteer, we're not a sufficient sacrifice. I can't die for your sins. I can't even die for my own. Only Jesus can take them away. So you see, in this and so many ways and throughout the Gospels, Jesus demonstrates, he reveals, he shows who God is in in an incredible way. As fully God, fully man, he lives life, he relates with his disciples and people, and he shows them who this incredible God is so that we can know him. Let's wrap this up real quickly with this thought. What does this have to do with joy? Um, and here's a sad reality. You say, well, that's all good. You know, the disciples got that. You know, Jesus was here. You know, he walked up with them. But like Elvis, he's left the building. Right? He's not here anymore. And I, I would love to go to Jerusalem or wherever and go sit at Jesus' feet. But he's not here. Right? He's no longer here in the flesh where we can see him as they did. So uh, if we're, you know, if, if, if he's the, the visible revelation of God so that we can relate to him better, maybe you feel like, well, now he's gone, so we're now we're back to our imaginary friend, right? We're back to, you know, this relationship with God that's mostly in our head and not face-to-face in person. Um, so, uh, you know, and if he's the source of our joy, how can we have joy if he's gone? Well, real quickly... Uh, Here's the principles. Uh, In John chapter 17, verse 13, uh, again, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays for the disciples, he prays for us. And in verse 13, he says this. He says, now I am coming to you, praying to the Father. He says, now, Father, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, I speak that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says, I I want my disciples to have the fullness of my joy. I want them to be full to overflowing with my joy. And that's going to happen because of the things I speak in the world. Um, What does he mean by that? Well, I think he means simply this, that um, what he revealed that's recorded in the Gospels and what he spoke and who he is and what he did is sufficient for us to relate to him. Right? The gospel witness is enough. We don't need the real physical Jesus within, with us anymore because what's recorded about his life in the gospels is sufficient. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love reading biographies. I, I just love reading biographies. And I feel that I am quite close to, and I know quite well, 
the men and women whose biographies I've read. I feel like I know Hudson Taylor pretty well, who he was as a person. I feel like I, I know George Mueller and even like Abraham Lincoln. I know him pretty well. Because people have captured who he was in these biographies. And so the reality is we can know a person. We can know the essence of them. We can know who they are through what was written about them. Now, if you're really clever and sharp, you'll say, yeah, you can know them in that sense, but you can't actually have a relationship with dead people. Good point, right? I can't actually know Abraham Lincoln in personal relationship, even though I can know who he is as a person. And that's true for all the dead people that we read about in biographies. But it's different with Jesus. It is different with Jesus. Why? Well, because he rose from the dead. Right? He is no, he's not still dead. He is living. He is ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the reality is that we can know him uh, up closer and in a way more personal because he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Because here's the reality. Even if I had lived in the day, day and time of Abraham Lincoln, the truth is I would never have known him personally as a friend. Because he was the president of the United States in the middle of the Civil War, and chances are he wasn't going to, even if I lived then, be inviting me to his house for tea, right? Um, the same reality if Jesus were here physically present, and we all wanted to have personal relationship with, with him face to face, it would just be a really long line, right? And, and you might not live long enough to get to the front of the line, and that would be really sad if you were three away and you died. <laughs> so close, right? But the amazing thing is it's not necessary anymore because Jesus ascended to heaven. He poured out his spirit and by his spirit, he what? He lives in us. He lives in our hearts. Ephesians 3 puts it this way. Amazing passage. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Long wordy prayer, but he says, look, I'm praying that you would be filled and strengthened in your inner person by the Holy Spirit. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Jesus doesn't want to just live near you. He actually wants to live, and he is living by faith in you, in your heart through his spirit. The Holy Spirit mediates the very presence of Christ to us in, our, in the depths of our being. I'm telling you, you cannot get more up close or more personal than that. He is there. He is with you. He is in you. He speaks to you and, and, and he hears you. Now, are, do you have conscious awareness of that? No, most of it you don't. There is depths of our being that are behind closed doors that we don't have conscious access to. It doesn't make it any less real. Jesus, if you if you accepted him by faith, if you're his child, he is in you in a way that's real and personal, even greater than if he was with you side by side in person. That's how real his presence is. And you may say, well, I just don't feel it. Well, here's two ways you can increase the sense of his presence, and we'll close with this. Uh, first of all, Jesus does not come into your house and make up residence as your butler. Now, he, he does serve us, and he, he, is a, he is a Lord who serves, but he doesn't live in you primarily as a butler or a maid 
or a roommate, or even a house guest who's just a friend. He, he is Lord and Master. And so he resides in your house, not as your house, but as his. Right? As Lord and Master of the house, of the mansion, of the kingdom. So our experience of his presence is deeply connected to our surrender to him. The reason a lot of people don't experience much of Christ's presence in their life is because he has so little access to most of their life. If you want Jesus to, to be a present reality dwelling in you that you know and experience, you've got to hand him the keys to every room. Or you've got to give him lordship and control, the right to rule over everything in your life. The more he is Lord, the more you will experience his presence. Secondly, Paul writes in, in, in Ephesians 3, he says, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be what? So you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The other way that we can grow in this Present, sense of God's presence, we can increase His indwelling presence in our life, is to grow in the knowledge of Christ's love. To, to, to understand more and more God's indescribable love. How do you do that? You go back to the revelation. Right? You go back to the witness of who Jesus is in the Gospels and you seek Him there. Right? If you want Jesus to dwell more in your hearts, you need to spend more time in his word. Discovering all that Jesus revealed about the heart and glory of God through his life. All right, I'm going to ask Nate to come and pray.